Chapter 2. More about the Kingdom. We need to say lots about the Kingdom of God since Kingdom of God was really Jesus' way of speaking of the Christian faith which he taught everywhere and for which he also died. Jesus was driven by the commission which God, his Father, had given him to announce the greatest good news or gospel ever, that the kingdom of God is coming. Luke 4, verse 43, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Also Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. You really know this, since almost everyone knows the kingdom prayer, may your kingdom come. You do not pray for something to come if it's already here. And Jesus did not say, your kingdom spread. He asked us to pray that the kingdom will come. To imagine that it has already come would be a quick way to confuse the Bible story. The notion held by some that after Jesus ascended to the Father we are no longer to pray the Lord's Prayer with its petition, Thy Kingdom Come, is fundamentally wrong. Such an idea would put us in direct disobedience to the Messiah, which is dangerous, as you read in John 3, verse 36. The Kingdom Prayer is still the key Christian prayer, and we are still praying for a future event the coming of the kingdom in power and glory. Jesus told us to pray, quote, Thy kingdom come, and we're to pray that prayer intelligently, knowing what we're saying. The last words of the Bible echo that passionate longing for Jesus to come back and bring peace on earth. Revelation 22, verse 20. Jesus knew the Old Testament well, and he knew a passage in the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which had just the same coming of the kingdom in mind. It defines the kingdom beautifully. I quote, The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. To you, Jerusalem, it will come. The former dominion will come the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is chock full of such promises of the future kingdom of God to be established on earth. That wonderful passage in the prophet Micah is a prophecy of a restored government operating with headquarters in Jerusalem. This has obviously not yet come to pass. One of the simplest and most enlightening facts about the Kingdom of God can be learned from the first chapter of the book of Acts. The promised Kingdom of God did not arrive on the day of Pentecost. The nations have not abandoned international or local wars as they will in the Kingdom of God. See Isaiah Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The churches are, in fact, hopelessly divided. There's no lasting peace on earth yet. The Bible expressly and clearly says 
that the coming of the kingdom of God will be at a time unknown to us. See Acts chapter 1 verse 7. The resurrected Jesus, however, stated that the coming of the Spirit of God in a special outpouring of power on the young church would be, quote, not many days from now. Acts 1 verse 5. When the disciples then asked if the kingdom of God would come at the same time, Jesus replied that this was a separate event whose date was reserved in God's plan and not to be known by us. See Acts chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. The coming of the kingdom is obviously then not the same event as the coming of the Spirit in spectacular power at Pentecost. The coming of the kingdom of God is future, and it includes the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1, verses 6 and 7. As Jesus' highly trained apostles and gospel preachers well knew. I trust that our first chapter impressed on you the hopelessness of trying to understand Jesus or the New Testament, or in fact the Old Testament, if we do not get a firm grasp, firstly, on the fact that Jesus always preached the gospel of the kingdom, and secondly, what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. So what did he mean by it? I want to deal with that question by first tackling a related question. What happens when we die? You will see very soon how that question is closely related to the kingdom of God. Let me direct your attention to the basic question about what happens to the dead. Where are they when they are dead? Are they really dead or in fact alive somewhere else? We need to understand the answer to this question as part of our search for understanding on the kingdom of God, the center of all that Jesus preached. Where did Jesus get his information about the kingdom of God and the future of human beings and about what happens when we die? The answer to that question lies largely in the Old Testament Bible background which Jesus learned from the synagogue. He learned also from his parents and of course from God his father who constantly inspired his thinking and all his activity. You will perhaps remember that from the age of 12, Jesus was able to, quote, run circles around the official doctors of religion of his day. He was, quote, streets ahead of them in his understanding of the great theological questions. Jesus appeared as a kind of Mozart or Einstein of his day, a prodigy, an exceptionally brilliant and talented exponent of God or of theology and of the meaning of the universe and life itself. The religious doctors of his time were amazed at his questions and answers as he discussed the great issues of life with them. For this story, see Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. We all need to soak ourselves in the wisdom and teaching of Jesus, that virtuoso of spiritual understanding. 
But have you been taught to think of Jesus as a tireless teacher and rabbi? The New Testament says that Jesus taught daily in the temple, no doubt for hours and hours. Luke 19, verse 47. I said that Jesus' understanding was largely due to his grasp of the Old Testament Bible, which he had grown up with. The Old Testament we might reasonably call the Hebrew Bible. It is written in the Hebrew language from Genesis to Malachi. Some parts of Daniel and a very few other passages are written in Aramaic, which is a language like Hebrew. Jesus had the same books in his Bible, the Old Testament, as you and I have in our Old Testament, 39 books. The books were the same. Jesus actually referred to that order of the books in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, where he spoke of these precious sacred writings, the Hebrew Bible, as, quote, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus loved those writings. Christians who have the spirit and mind of Christ will love them too. He believed in their inspiration, and that means that he believed that God had used the writers of those books to record what God wanted revealed to us. God did not dictate his words to the Bible writers, using them as robots, but he taught them his will and without bypassing their different capacities and backgrounds. God caused them to put on paper what he wanted communicated about his great plan in world history and, of course, his plan to give immortality to those who choose to listen carefully to God and his agents, the prophets, and to the final prophet and Messiah, Jesus. Yes, Jesus was the ultimate prophet. He was also the Son of God. Luke 1.35 tells us the basis for his being the Son of God. You probably have not heard Jesus called a prophet, but according to a great prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, he's called a prophet like Moses, though of course greater than Moses. The New Testament links that prophecy with Jesus in Acts 3.22, and Acts 7, verse 37. Peter, in Acts 3, 22 and 23, uttered some pretty strong words. He said that every human being who will not pay attention and respond to the words of, quote, that prophet, who is Jesus, has very little future. He is in terrible trouble with God. Jesus said the same thing powerfully in John 3, Verse 36. When God inspired the writers of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as he did later the writers of the New Testament, God's very mind was expressed. God used the individual talents of the different writers. As we pointed out, he did not just impose on them a form of, quote, guided writing, using them as passive instruments. Rather, he gave them understanding of his will and purpose. He gave them wisdom. He taught them, sometimes through great trials, and he used them to write the Bible. That is why we refer to the Bible as scripture or holy writings. 
This means that the words of Scripture are reliable and true. I note that there are a few passages which have been corrupted by copiers, but the evidence for this is usually clear, and scholars are able to help us get at the original version. God has not left us without a clear statement of his will and intention. Jesus promised to send scribes, that's to say professional Bible scholars, to help declare the gospel. See Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, and compare this with Daniel 12, verse 3. All this means that the words of Scripture carry the very spirit, mind, and heart of God. We can learn how God thinks from the Bible. David was one of the great Bible writers, and he expressed how God had used him as a vehicle of inspiration. I quote, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was in my mouth. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. David's words were expressions of the mind, spirit, and will of God. As Jesus put it, quote, The Scripture cannot be broken. John 10, verse 35. Jesus over and over again claimed to be speaking on behalf of the one God, his Father. God has seen to it that the precious words of Jesus have been preserved for us. Paul put it this way, quote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. He said, in fact, that scripture was inspirited by God. God breathed his mind and will and spirit into the words of Scripture so that they tell us exactly what God wanted known. They reveal what God is thinking and what he wants us to know for our own good. The Bible, especially the teachings of Jesus as the foundation of Christianity, equips us with the information needed to make sense of life with all of its difficulties. We can rely on the Bible as a sacred record of what God has communicated to the human race to help us on the journey of life towards our goal, which is immortality in the future kingdom of God. God spoke in ancient times through various prophets and only in New Testament times did he give his ultimate message, the gospel of the kingdom, through his son, Jesus. For this fundamental fact, please read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You will find there, too, that God created the ages of the world with Jesus in mind. The whole Bible centers on God's immortality program as it was finally revealed to us by Jesus as God's agent. The Bible tells us where the world is headed and what we must do to fit into God's plan. The scriptures are given to us as a great comfort that God is in charge whatever happens to us. It is our job to find out and follow God's plan. You may notice that I did not say that God guides us on our journey of life towards heaven. One of the greatest of all confusions and muddles 
ever to hit churches is the use of the word, quote, heaven as the goal of the Christian. Neither Jesus nor the Bible anywhere ever spoke of heaven as the goal Christians are aiming at. There's no place called heaven in the Bible, meaning a place where your soul goes when you die. God and Jesus are in heaven, certainly, but the dead are not. You may find this a bit shocking, but I ask you to think deeply about this question of human destiny and destination. I'm hoping to convince you that speaking about, quote, heaven as your future destination is a quick way to get confused about the Bible. I repeat, the Bible never says that when we die, if we are believers in Jesus, that we go, quote, to heaven. It never says that anywhere. Jesus never preached a gospel about, quote, heaven. Jesus did not believe in going to heaven when you die. He himself did not go to heaven the day he died. Jesus promised the thief that he would be with him in the future paradise of the kingdom of God. The thief had asked to be remembered in the future, quote, when you come in your kingdom, Luke 23, verse 42. Jesus replied emphatically that indeed the thief would be in the kingdom when Jesus returned, Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus clearly said that he would be three days in the grave, Matthew 12, verse 40, and after his resurrection, he still had not yet gone to heaven to be with God, John 20, verse 17. Jesus plainly said that those who had died as the faithful of Old Testament times were still dead in their graves. Jesus did not believe that any human being had gone to heaven when he or she had died. Enoch and Elijah had been taken up into the sky, it's true. But Hebrews 11 tells us that they later died. They are certainly not now in heaven, and nor is any other human being except Jesus who is there with God the Father. Jesus plainly said, that those who had died as the faithful in Old Testament times were still dead in their graves. He never said that they or anyone else had gone to a celestial heavenly mansion or to a burning hellfire. Pick up a New Testament for yourself and simply read, asking yourself what objective or goal did Jesus offer his followers? Where did he ever say, quote, if you want to go to heaven, follow me? He never said that. He never said, you're going to rejoin your dead relatives in heaven. Much less did Jesus ever imagine that disembodied souls, that's to say souls without bodies, had left the earth for a heavenly existence with God. So you might ask, where did I learn all that language about going to heaven? The answer is that you learned it by listening to other church members, by sitting in Sunday or Sabbath school, by singing hymns in church and listening to sermons. But you could not possibly have learned that from the Bible 
There's a very important conclusion to be drawn from this amazing fact. It is that large numbers of churchgoers united in one great organization do not often stop to ask themselves about what they learned, what they believe, and what they understand about their faith. They do not, in fact, generally ask many questions at all about what they believe. After all, their leader has been trained. He must know. And who are they as pew-sitters to question what is taught from the pulpit? The fact is that countless good Bible scholars have complained bitterly about the fact that, quote, heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying. That quotation is from a celebrated scholar, J.A.T. Robinson, at Cambridge in his book, In the End God. These leaders in the church have been leaders in the field of Bible studies, but the public either does not bother to read what they have to say or are simply not interested in a clear understanding of their future hope. And hope is the second great Christian virtue along with faith and love. The content of your hope is very important. The Bible has lots to say about what a Christian is to hope for. For whatever reason, the church-going public is content to rely on, quote, what everyone believes. That is, that at death our so-called souls leave our bodies in the grave and we continue to live on. We sing about, quote, John Brown's body rotting in the grave while, quote, his soul goes marching on. We just change our address from earth to heaven. We shed our physical clothing, our body, and our so-called immortal soul soars off to heaven to be with Jesus. One popular hymn speaks of flying off to heaven. All this may sound comforting, but is it in any way true? We've all had this heaven at death idea enforced at funerals repeatedly. How many of us have looked at an open casket and thought, isn't that a pleasant thought? The dead person is not really in the coffin. He or she is really somewhere else enjoying, watching us as we grieve over their so-called departure to a better place. But is that really enjoyment? And we go on reinforcing our grand misunderstanding by speaking of the dead as having, quote, passed away, which in some vague way seems to mean that they've gone to heaven to be fully conscious with God and Jesus. We tell our children that dead relatives have just left their clothes, their body, in the grave, and have gone off to be with God and Jesus alive and well. How a person can exist without a body, we cannot imagine. But long-standing tradition has convinced us that the dead are really alive somewhere else. Of course, Christian bookstores confirm our false understanding with popular descriptions of people who have had so-called after-death experiences. These people claim to have died and gone to heaven. Some say that they have visited hell. Somehow these, but not the Bible or Jesus, are taken as, quote, gospel truth. The public is deluged with the idea that the dead are really alive somewhere else. But none of this is true.
whereof it cleverly diverts your attention from the real Christian goal, and that goal is an essential part of the gospel of the kingdom which Jesus invites us to believe. We must say frankly that anyone who speaks of the dead going to heaven does not sound at all like Jesus. Jesus never said any such thing. Jesus spoke sometimes of rewards in heaven, but this is a typical Jewish way of telling us that our future reward is now prepared in heaven with God and will be given to us on earth in the future at the return of Jesus to this earth. Jesus never spoke of going to heaven, and so people who do use that heaven when you die language appear to tell us that they've been listening to the church and not to Jesus and the Bible. I trust that you will accept this as a challenge to further careful study. How is it that the church, your church perhaps, could be poles apart from Jesus on such an elementary and basic question as, quote, what happens when I die? If you're prepared to read on, I want to try to convince you from simple Bible verses that the whole popular idea that a man or woman consists of a physical body and a separable conscious soul which never dies is just a myth, or should we call it what really it is, a lie. It was the devil who originally promoted the falsehood that disobedience to God would not lead to death. Genesis chapter 3 verse 4. Adam, however, failed to listen to God and lost his life. He died. The New Testament speaks of Christians who die, but the great difference is this. For them as believers, that is not the end. They will come back to life. They will be resurrected, brought back to life from death. They will return to life at, quote, the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, verse 14. Jesus is going to resurrect them when he comes back. Until then, they remain dead and buried. Once you understand this, you'll be able to look forward to the kingdom of God as your goal, the grand purpose for which you presently exist. Is it reasonable that lies should be promoted in the name of Jesus? Is that safe for us and our church? Or is it time for us all to raise a protest against falsehoods of any sort preached in the name of Jesus, who did not believe what our church teaches? One might even ask whether Jesus would be welcome in our church. He might be asked politely or impolitely to leave and not come to our church. If he were to report on the dead as he did in the case of Lazarus, his friend. Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep. Lazarus is dead. I'm going to wake him up from the dead. Please look this up in John 11, verse 11 and 14. Jesus did not say, Lazarus has gone to heaven. Jesus said he would bring Lazarus back to life by calling him back from his tomb. John 
11, verse 43. That is where the dead Lazarus was. He had not gone somewhere else, nor have your dead relatives and friends. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also dead and buried. Neither she nor any so-called special, quote, saints can possibly hear prayer. The notion that dead saints, so-called, respond to prayer is a huge fairy tale. But about a billion people in one large denomination believe it. The grief counselling of Jesus, as reported by John, sounds radically different from the erroneous counsel offered by churchmen when they comfort the bereaved with the assurance that their relatives are alive and well in, quote, a better place, that's to say heaven. One clergyman reacted this way when we put it to him that the Bible does not teach that the dead are in heaven. You are quite right, of course, he said. But then he added, but I could not possibly say such a thing from the pulpit. Do those words of Jesus, that his dead friend Lazarus was asleep in his tomb, challenge you, even shock you? I believe they are meant to drive you and me to some earnest thinking. After all, believing falsehoods in the name of Jesus or supporting organizations which promote falsehoods in the name of Jesus is likely to be dangerous. A very risky business, I would think, since Jesus always insisted that we must believe the truth and never falsehoods, that we must always be willing to stand up for him and what he taught against all opposition. And remember that Jesus encountered most opposition not from the general public, but from the churches or synagogues of his day. He also warned that, quote, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him when I come back. Mark 8, verse 38. Jesus was a tireless opponent of careless worship, of worship not based on scripture, but based on tradition, carelessly and thoughtlessly inherited from our parents and perpetuated unopposed in our churches. Jesus complained bitterly against teaching tradition rather than truth in church. We're all meant to be intelligent truth seekers, not passive receivers of unexamined tradition. We must worship God within a framework of, quote, spirit and truth. Jesus' words in John 4, verse 24. Tradition which contradicts the Bible is a deadly poison in the church. And Jesus issued a forceful warning to this effect. Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9. Religious tradition embedded in our lives because our parents taught it and our church taught it, and our best friends believe it, exercises a mighty power over our thinking. And the one question which apparently only a very few seem to ask is, what is the gospel? Jesus had learned from the Hebrew Bible a number of very simple, basic facts about death. In Ecclesiastes, 
He had read and probably memorized Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 10. We read there a clear statement about the state of the dead. Quote, the dead know nothing at all, and they have no more reward. There's no activity or thought or knowledge in Sheol, that's to say, gravedom, the world of the dead, to which you are going. Another quotation, the dead do not praise the Lord, all those who go down into silence. Psalm 115, verse 17, and scores of verses say the same thing. This hardly sounds as if the dead are fully conscious in bliss, watching their surviving relatives from a privileged position in heaven. Would that in fact be any sort of privilege? Happily, God has arranged things quite differently. He places the dead in a state of unconsciousness, at rest in their graves until a great future moment. That grand and amazing moment is the event of the resurrection, which will happen when Jesus comes back to inaugurate worldwide his kingdom of God, the subject of his gospel. All this is concisely and plainly stated in that wonderful verse in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Here is how the dead will one day return from death to life. I quote, Many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will awake, some to the life of the age to come. You are familiar certainly with the idea of everlasting life. Here is its first mention it is literally the life of the age to come. That is life in the future kingdom of God, life to be gained fully only via resurrection. In this chapter, we've been speaking more about the kingdom of God, but in order to unfold the biblical story, the greatest story and drama ever, we've had to take up two related subjects, the question of what happens when we die, and just briefly, the grand future arrival of Jesus back on earth. Why must he come back? To raise the sleeping dead from their graves and to make possible the great promise contained in his gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is coming back to reorganize the world so that it works properly and fairly as God intended. Jesus is going to supervise a new world administration with headquarters in Jerusalem. The Bible, especially the writings of the Hebrew prophets, is simply filled with this information on page after page. Isaiah 32 verse 1 from various versions predicts, and I quote, there will be a king who reigns uprightly and princes who rule with fair judgment. Another quotation, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. Look, a righteous king is coming and honest princes will rule under him. That's Isaiah 32 verse 1 from various versions. I wonder if you realize that Jesus' aim in preaching the good news about the kingdom was to invite you to be one of those, quote, honest princes or princesses to administer that future world with Jesus.
The gospel of the kingdom calls you to royal office in the first really successful government. Put away then the feeble idea that your destiny is to strum a harp in a far-off celestial place. Your training as a Christian now and the talents God has given you are designed to equip you to bless the world on a grand scale when the kingdom comes. God is not finished with you in this present life. He desires to, quote, give the earth to those who are pleasing to him. That's in Jeremiah 27, verse 5. Can you imagine being given the earth? God wants to appoint you as a servant administrator in the kingdom which God and Jesus are preparing. This is not a form of oppressive government, but the wise and loving supervision of the affairs of the nations by Jesus himself and those whom he is equipping for the same royal service. All talent comes from God, and it's our duty to develop those talents not only now, but in readiness for the time when Jesus puts in place and power his world government, the kingdom of God. Here are the words of Jesus looking forward to the time when he comes back. He will say to those who have persisted, Well done! You are a trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. That's in Luke 19, verse 17. Unfortunately, if you've been listening to a world-famous evangelist who represents millions of believers, you may have learned that, quote, in heaven we will polish rainbows, tend heavenly gardens, and prepare heavenly dishes. That's a quotation from Billy Graham. Jesus said nothing at all along those lines. Polishing rainbows is frankly just pious nonsense. Jesus offered the public to prepare now to join him in the brand new administration he will introduce when he returns to our planet. Don't you realize, Paul the Apostle said, perhaps a bit frustrated with his audience ignorance of the basics of the faith, don't you realize that the saints are going to manage the world? And if the world is going to come under your jurisdiction, that's in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. For Paul and the early Christians, this was a most elementary and foundational fact about Christianity. Polishing rainbows in heaven would have seemed to them all quite ludicrous. I have friends who say that this popular fiction about, quote, heaven, if that is what Jesus promised, puts them off Christianity entirely. They are totally bored at such a prospect. They find such a destiny repulsive. I will add here a grand statement from a famous London preacher who hit the nail on the head on this matter of the Christian goal, the heart of the gospel. We will dwell in glorified bodies on the glorified earth. This is one of the great Christian doctrines that has been almost entirely forgotten and ignored. Unfortunately, the Christian church, 
I'm speaking generally, does not believe this and therefore does not teach it. The church has lost its hope, and this explains why it spends most of its time in trying to improve life in this world in preaching politics. But something remarkable is going to be true of us, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will rule the world? This is Christianity. This is the truth by which the New Testament church lived. It was because of this that they were not afraid of their persecutors. This was the secret of their endurance, their patience, and their triumphing over everything that was set against them. And a quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones, his commentary on Romans. What happens when we die? Future resurrection and the future kingdom. A lot of information in two chapters, you may say. Let's see if we can pull this together clearly in our next chapter. Remember that the whole biblical story is about the kingdom of God, which was the gospel as Jesus and Paul preached it. It is God's great plan to achieve peace on earth and to involve you in that process, if you are willing to respond positively to Jesus and his gospel about the kingdom.